Um, I've heard from many of you how much you have loved and appreciated this series. And I've also heard from many of you how this series has been very annoying for you because it's opened up Pandora's box and led to question after question after question. And I know all of us are excited about how we continue to look at each of these topics and dialogue more about them in the future moving forward. And if you missed any of the weeks, I want to encourage you, I know a few of you did, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to all the podcasts and watch the videos. Because each week um, within our progressive Christianity is, is series, we label them God, Jesus, salvation, humanity, sin. We looked at worship and missions and prayer. But within each of those topics, we also leaned in and talked about the other topics as well. So each week was a very important week. So go back and watch that. And today I want to do my best to stand for insight to give you a summation of what progressive Christianity is. What this lens is. And we can and we should start with what the heart of Christianity is. For we are Christians. We are decidedly followers of Jesus. And so we must ask them, what is the essence of Christianity? And you might still be asking, why are we using this adjective progressive? And so we feel, we as the leadership here, feel that we need to make a distinction, a clarification, if you will, about what um, we are really trying to say here at Grace Point. I had lunch this week with a friend um, early in the week, and she mentioned to me that she does not line up with this word evangelical. She was wondering, Grace Point, are you still using this word evangelical? Because I can't line up with it if you are. And then in turn, this week, later this week, Rob Bell put out a video. Many of you watched that video where he talked about being evangelical. Anybody? Yes? Four people. Fabulous. You should go check it out. So he put out this video where basically he says that he and progressives in general want to reclaim this word evangelical. They want to take it back. And so what I'm realizing this week, maybe more than ever, are that these words matter. These labels matter. And not just how we use them or what we say with them, but more importantly, the definitions of what we mean by them matter. And so for us to use both the words progressive and Christian are both very intentional. And part of the beauty of this progressive lens is that we can look at where we are in history. We can look at our culture and what is happening in the world around us. We can talk about what our experiences are individually and corporately, and then how do they drive us back to this text? How do they drive us back to this text? We are asking ourselves, where do we find truth? So I ask, where is Christianity today in 2015? What does progressive Christianity mean? We've heard Stan say that progressive Christianity is actually at the heart of traditional Christianity. That Jesus was the ultimate progressive and so was Paul. And that Jesus and Paul would be heretics if they were here today just as they were then. They were accused of that. And so why do we call then our version of Christianity progressive? The distinguishing characteristic of progressive Christianity is the belief in continual progressive revelation. That's a very important phrase that I want us to all walk out of here to understand today. Continual progressive revelation. Let's look at it on the screens. Continual progressive revelation is the idea that God and God's heart or God's will have been revealed more and more over time. That God has revealed God's self and God's will through the scriptures with increasing clarity as more and more of the scriptures were written. In other words, the later the writing, the more the information was given, the more clarity then on who God is. 
Therefore, God reveals knowledge in a progressive and in an increasing manner throughout the Bible from the earliest time to the latest time. Now, the church has always believed in that progressive revelation, but the argument was, and still is today, did revelation end at the close of the canon? When we finally put the scriptures together as the book, the Bible, did progressive revelation end? Was it ended at the close of the first century? Did the fullness of God become made known to us during what's known as the age of the apostles? Or does it continue to be revealed? That is the question. We as the leadership at Grace Point, as well as thousands of people around the world, we do believe that progressive revelation is continuing, and it has continued. And we also think that with a careful look at church history, that it becomes obvious that God is still revealing. And if we start in Scripture, we can see it. If you look in Matthew 5, it's the famed Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus first says, You've heard it said, but I say unto you. Now, the hermeneutic of Jesus, the way that Jesus interpreted the text, was not to challenge the text, but to challenge their interpretation of it. That's very important. He was not saying, this text says something different now. He was saying, you thought you understood what the text said, but now I'm saying to you, do you see something new? Jesus is asking, have you really gotten out of this text what was intended? Do you really know the full truth that is in there? Have you captured the eternal principle between the phrases, not just the black words on the white page? In John 16, 12, I want to look at it together. It's from the NRSV. Says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It goes on to say, But when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, there is a continuing work through the Holy Spirit. That is the unfolding of Christ. That is the unfolding of truth, the continual revelation as we have the capacity to hear it and to receive it. So Christ is saying this, that what you believe is good, and I'm not condemning it, but I'm saying something new to you. I'm saying something more because now you have the capacity for a new thing. That's not undermining what you have heard, that is building upon it. We are undermining Paul when we finally come to the abolition of slavery. We are undermining what Paul and Peter said and how they spoke to slaves about being submissive and be kind and stay in the situation. But what it was is that in their context and in their time, they did not have the capacity to see the full unfolding truth of God. And so we are contradicting what Paul and Peter have said. We're saying they were not ready to receive the truth that was yet to come. It was the kindergarten step, if you will. It was the first step that Paul and Peter made to later a more full expression of what the truth would be. In Luke 24, there's a story of two disciples. They are on their way to Emmaus, and this is after Jesus has been um, rose from the dead. And Jesus joins them on the road, and he's walking with them, and they don't recognize him. And they're walking with him, and they just don't know it. And Jesus opens then their scripture at their time, their scrolls, and he says everything that was in the text. He's revealing not just the words that they memorized, but he was revealing the heart and the meaning of the text. See, these disciples, they had held these texts for years. They had memorized them, and they thought that they understood their meaning. Yet we are reminded here that there is a capacity for all of us to walk faithfully and 
remains unopened. We can walk and live faithfully with unopened texts. We can also sometimes live with a faithful text, and yet our hearts are the ones that remain unopened. So moving on in Scripture in the book of Acts, it's the early church, the Jewish Christian church, and they are wrestling with this idea of the Gentile inclusion. In Acts 10, God basically is assaulting Peter's understanding of Scripture. So Peter has this experience, he has this dream, in which what he sees in the dream goes against everything that he thought God had already said that he should do in this situation with the Gentiles. He thought he understood. See, sometimes our experiences that we have, they are so dissonant with our received dogma, with our received doctrine, with what we have already learned and what we think we know is truth then our experiences begin to accumulate or something becomes so real to us that it moves us and it drives us back to this text. And we have to ask, did we read this song? Did we hear it incorrectly? Have our minds now been opened into something new? These incarnational experiences, their personal experiences with God, they drive us back. And sometimes, sometimes we realize this does not say what we thought it said. Following along in Acts 11, the church is still arguing with Peter over the inclusion of the Gentiles, but Peter then confronts them with his experience. He goes on to show them step by step what actually happened between him and God, what happened between God and the Gentiles, and then they can't argue with it. Later in Acts 15, James is talking, and he has now also changed his mind about the Gentile inclusion, and he then quotes an earlier text that they memorized from Amos. And I want you to watch this because it's pretty fascinating. It's in Acts 15. The entire assembly felt quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders of what God did among the Gentiles through their activity. When Barnabas and Paul also fell silent, James responded. Okay, so James has now changed his mind. And he says, fellow believers, listen to me. Simon Peter reported how in his kindness God came to the Gentiles in the first place to raise up from them a people of God goes on to say, there we are, the prophet's words agree with this as it is written. So here, he's quoting Amos. He's going back to a text that they had memorized, that they had held and memorized for years. And he's saying, wait a second, it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild what has been torn down. I will restore it so that the rest of humanity will seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who belong to me. They had that text years, and yet they never saw it. They never understood that the Gentiles would be included as children of God. And so James now looks through a lens of his incarnate experience, and then he takes the scripture and he says, we've read this wrong. We have missed this. We've never seen this correctly. Now, all Christianity pretty much admits what I just said, but they think that Revelation ended in the first century. And now all progressive Christianity is trying to say is that God is still revealing. And a careful look at our church history indicates that it did not end at the end of the first century. It took 300 more years for us to come up with that Bible. It took another 500 years for us to come up with the doctrine of Trinity. On the doctrine of the rapture and dispensationalism didn't happen for another 18 and a half centuries. Pentecostalism was rejected. This move, the spirit was rejected until the 20th century. Then finally we get to the abolition of slavery. We get to the inclusion of women. We get to the retake on the issue of divorce. And you see that throughout church history, we 
have a continual unfolding of truth. We have a continual revelation of what is true and good. And so Stan says, he has this beautiful quote about scripture, and I want us to look at it on the screen. You probably heard him say it a ton of times, but he says, scripture is this time-released capsule. It releases its spiritual medicine as the body has the capacity to metabolize it. So at the heart, that is exactly what's at the heart of the adjective progressive, that we might ultimately understand and seek for truth wherever it may be found. When Pentecostalism erupted, and some of us um, maybe think that it goes to the extreme thing, but what Pentecostalism did for us, it showed us that God can't engage with us personally. Because prior to that, there was no room within our, our churches for the move of the Spirit engaging us. That's why Phyllis Tickle, the late Phyllis Tickle, may she rest in peace, that's why she said that we are now in the age of the Spirit. She has this beautiful quote, and I want to look at it together. It says, as the new form of Christianity and this new way of being church and the kingdom mature, they, like their predecessors and earlier upheavals, soon must come to address the question of authority, to address the question of how now shall we live and by whose definitions of right and wrong, correct or incorrect, holy or heretical. She goes on to say, when they and or we, when we fully engage that dreaded question, it will be in terms of the spirit and of holy discernment. The center of our new authority will lie, as it did in earlier presentations, not with political and ecclesial hierarchies, nor even in sola scriptura and inerrancy as is popularly defined. Rather, it will lie within the realm of the spirit and an awe-filled, discerning discourse in it and with it. The authority then lies within us to wisely discern truth, to use our knowledge, to value tradition, to listen to the community, not just within these walls, but the broader community in our world, to trust our intuition, to trust our reason, to take our experiences and then allow them, if needed, to drive us back to the text. Our hermeneutic, our way of interpretation is in one with humility. There's an old proverb saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When we are ready as individuals, as humanity, God continues to reveal. So I believe that God has empowered us with freedom and with creativity in this life. God has given us minds and hearts that will both drive us to be better, to grow and to mature, to seek truth wherever it may be found. And then God also gives us minds and hearts that will sometimes cause us to pause, to cause us to check our actions, to check our intentionality. There's been a big question, as Phyllis talked about, throughout the ages of who or what holds the ultimate authority. Was it the head of the church? Was it the pope? Was it when Luther came, with the Reformation, with Sola Scriptura, that the Bible holds an ultimate authority? Then with the age of the Spirit, many of us have felt that it is the Spirit that is ultimately directing our lives. That's why Phyllis Tickle eventually says, no, ultimately God has given you authority because it is the priesthood of all believers. But for many of us, we keep coming back to this book. We keep needing to understand 
understand what place this Bible then holds in our lives. And I think once we can capture that and understand that, then we can have a million conversations about a million ideas. I can't tell you how many coffees and conversations that we as the leadership have with so many of you that before we can get to the topic, before we can give good advice or healthy advice, we have to talk about how we use and how we view this scripture. See, we all want to be curious about truth, but most of us have to wrestle with what do we do then with the Bible? Because so many of us grew up with the Bible as being our instruction manual. It was our constitution. And I wonder instead if we can, as Brian McLaren offers, let this sacred text be a sacred library. A book then that is in conversation with everything and everyone. McLaren says a Bible, it's an inspired library, and thus it preserves, it presents, it inspires an ongoing, vigorous conversation with and about God. It is a living and civil argument into which we are all invited and through which God is revealed. After all, revelation, what we're talking about, revelation doesn't simply happen in statements. It happens in conversations and arguments that take place within and among communities of people who share these same essential questions that need to be asked across generations. Revelation accumulates in our relationships and in our interactions with each other and the interplay between the statements that we make. So I believe very much that we will still allow Scripture to be authoritative, but maybe it's authoritative in a different way than many of us grew up with. Look at this quote. It's by Delvin Brown. He wrote a great book about progressive Christianity. He says, The Bible is authoritative for progressive Christians because it empowers, not because it confines. It empowers, not because it confines. So if we can think of authority, not in something that dictates or that makes decisions on your behalf or that calls us into conformity, if authority can be something that gives permission, something that sanctions and that influences and that invites, authority then actually extends more authority. It extends a rightful freedom and a power to respond creatively. And now we have to confess that freedom is a risk. And only the mature handle freedom well. We see that with our kids as they continue to grow. We give them a little freedom and they mess up and we pull them back. Freedom is a risk. Only the mature handle it well. Del Brown goes on to explain that authority comes from the Latin word author, which leads to our English word author. Now, any author, any fiction writer, any of them even in the room would tell you that as they write, they have influence and give life to a character. But then that character takes on the life of itself, and the author goes with them and allows that character then to develop as seems necessary. So in keeping with that idea of authority as one that authors us, one that gives being to and forms and empowers, then we are guided, but we are not restricted by scripture and by tradition. The variety of insights and viewpoints and intentions in the Bible, they are a source of instruction for us. We don't deny those contradictions. They instruct us but also the unity found in Scripture, the unity centered for Christians around Jesus Christ, calls us then to search together, to be open to one another, and to be willing to grow and to change, just as we see growth and change in Scripture itself. So the Scriptures form us, 
they follow, or we choose to follow them, Scripture's reasoning, we learn from its conclusions, it offers us, and it actually teaches us to think for ourselves. It teaches us to think for ourselves. As we look back then on our history, progressive Christianity casts no aspersions on the past. We should never focus on they were wrong and now, yeah, you were right, and we have it all figured out. No. We recognize that this is about accumulated wisdom and that our children, the next generation and the generation after that, that they will build upon our wisdom as well. That as they have the capacity to understand that they believe and we believe that God will continue to reveal God's self to them. So our progressive lens, it's humble. It admits that we don't know everything and it's respectful that we have accumulated this wisdom from our past. But it's also imaginative. It's also creative. That means that I don't think we are disrespecting Paul by disagreeing with Paul. I think we are honoring him in the trajectory that he set in place. We may have overturned some of Paul's time-bound answers, but we do so in the spirit of Paul's time-bound principles. You get that? We may have overturned some things that Paul said was true. We've overturned his answers, but we do so in the very spirit in which Paul has set in place. See, there's this idea in Jewish thought. It's the idea of midrash. We've talked about it a little bit. It's the idea of wrestling with this text. It's why we've renamed our Bible studies on Wednesday night midrash. We haven't talked much about it yet. But it's because every Wednesday night people are coming in here with Stan and they're wrestling with this book. And the Jewish tradition believes that God continues to speak in new ways that evolve along with our human understanding. Questioning is at the very heart of Judaism. It's a part of their healthy spirituality. And so, when we title the series, this progressive Christianity is dot, 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 I want to remind you that those ellipsis points, that they are so very intentional because we believe at the heart of Christianity, um, without adding any adjectives to it, that God is still revealing, still unfolding, and still speaking. That we have humans, as humans, that we've not fully captured, nor have we fully matured yet. That we are, in fact, building upon our past, building upon the accumulation of the wisdom throughout the ages. And if you think about it, we already do that in all these other areas, in science, in art, in philosophy. And so I think what we're espousing and promoting here at Grace Point, and among many other progressive voices and communities around the world, is a safe place. It's a place for those willing to explore, those willing to investigate, those willing to pursue truth and beauty wherever you may find it. Being progressive is for those who want to remain fully open, fully open for those who want to be curious about truth and about God. See, again, because we also believe that God is fully in and with us in this world. So I want us to be able to talk about everything and not necessarily have to agree on everything. The point is not uniformity. It's not about agreement. The point is about unity. It is about love and choosing to live with love. It's about continuing negotiation with the tradition that we've inherited. It is about um, a continual conversation with our experiences and intuition not having to be checked at that door. And all of that will produce rich dialogue. It's about choosing to name the tensions that we feel and that we still choose then to live in community together here at Grace Point. And then for all of us to continue then to apply that as we leave these doors.
yours and go out into our real lives and the rest of our lives and the rest of our weeks. To be able to live in tension, to be able to live in disagreement and still stay in community, to still stay in communion with the world, that's what it's about. It's about using the hermeneutic that Jesus used and with that realizing that we have been granted this freedom, that we are also the grounded in creativity and letting that guide our thinking letting that challenge our conclusions, letting that inspire our hearts and empower us in our conversations with each other. See, our hermeneutic is our worldview. And we aren't saying that at Grace Point we all need to see the same thing. But I do think it's fair, and we think it's fair, that you should know that we as the leadership, that this is the hermeneutic that we use, that this is the way that we see this world, and that this is what we are in turn teaching our children and our youth um, up at that youth house and back in this hallway. Lillian Bostel stopped me a couple of weeks ago and she gave me a fabulous analogy for what we are espousing here at Grace Point. For many parents in the room of school-aged children, you are very familiar with this new tactic called the Common Core. Yes? Parents? Yes. Okay, so it, it can be very annoying and very frustrating for many of us. And to help any of you that don't have school-aged children to sort of understand what the Common Core method is, I just want to give you just a, a little picture to sort of look at the old way versus way. No, that. Okay, old-fashioned way, how most of us grew up, common core new way. Look at that drama. Right? Okay, so, so when Hutch brings home his fourth grade math homework to Ben and I, I mean, we have been commonly annoyed because we don't know what to do. We don't know how to teach this approach. But here's the thing. The heart of the common core message is that teachers were realizing that the kids need to know the why behind their conclusions. The kids then are not just taught a method to memorize in order to come to a correct answer. Because teachers were finding that although the, the kids could give them that answer by the certain memorized method, that when asked to explain why it works or how it works, they'd have a really hard time being able to do so. But if students can get a handle on thinking this way, on using the process, using their mind to think through the process of why, versus just plugging numbers into a formula as the thinking goes, then later they'll be able to use problem solving, not just now, but in the future, it will be much easier for them. So watch this. Many of us grew up with a version of Christianity that gave us doctrines to memorize and conclusions already set. We were given tools like the Bible, as our constitution. We were given tools like a personal relationship with Jesus and yet given no freedom within that to ask, to question, to wrestle. And so when life brought us problems that we didn't expect, when the memorized um, ways that we were supposed to work through these problems brought us no peace, then what happens was many of us became frustrated because those answers no longer worked. This way of spirituality then, Christianity, ran out for many of us and either pushed us out the door of the church and running in the opposite direction because we were not happy with the answer of, well, God is in control, or just memorize and say God's ways are higher than my ways. We ran out the door or we ran into new ways of thinking. So instead, what if, what if we were exposed to all the tools, the healthy tools that don't hinder your thinking but that promote it? What if progressive Christianity then takes this common core approach and teaches you then to think for yourself? What if instead of being told, this is your small patch of grass, now feed on this, 
What if instead you're exposed to the whole pasture and you can learn then to feed yourself, to nourish yourself, and in the meantime there are shepherds and pastors that will be with you and love you, but we're not telling you what to think or how to think. If healthy spirituality then is not about memorizing those set dogmas, but maybe it's about exploring together as individuals and as a community. That's why Lillian Boswell came to me and she said, Sadie, her daughter, is sitting and hearing these concepts that we're teaching at church. And then later she'll go and she'll be in the car and she's listening to the radio, and not Christian radio, but regular radio. And she hears these songs then that promote life. She hears these songs that promote hope and life and something perks in her mind and she says, we, that's, that's Grace Point. That's what they're trying to say at Grace Point. And then Lillian comes and recommends these songs that her daughter is recommending to me. And now I've used two of those songs already during our Sunday morning service from a young child who gets it. And she gets it because she's hearing something and she's using her reason and her experience and maybe a scriptural concept that she heard here or at home. And something resonates then deeply within her soul. And although it doesn't have the words Christian on it, she says this is the heart of God. This is who I am and who we're called to be. She gets it because she's been given the freedom to do so. So progressive Christianity believes, again, in the scriptural idea of the priesthood of all believers. And yet some of us didn't grow up with that notion. If we had questions, or God forbid, disagreed with the pastor or the church or the denomination, then we were shut down. We were silenced. Ben and I experienced that in a previous church. We were silenced. But your opinion is not a bad thing. Your voice matters as a beloved child of God, and your experience matters. Now, so does mine. So does mine. And so we bring these things together into community and with tradition from which we've come, and we use these tools, and we do so, and we are humble, and we are also courageous. In Scripture, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking, and he says this brilliant thing. He says, I have no command of the Lord. I have no command. God has not told me specifically what to do, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. See, we are given permission to be able to say, I think I have the mind of Christ on this. And by the mercy of God, I am giving my opinion because we live under the canopy of God's mercy. Can we trust maybe that it's not going to be fatal to get something wrong? That we no longer live in that scarcity mentality where God is sending everyone to hell for eternity. We don't live under that. We live under the canopy of God's mercy. And so can we be both humble and courageous and say it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. And we are counted worthy to give an opinion under the canopy of God's mercy. Now when we use our voices like that though, our voices need to be ones of healing. When we take some stances, our stances need to be ones that reconcile, ones that draw people back to the table of fellowship and remind them of their worth as the beloved. Our process then of salvation that we've talked about, of coming home to who we are in God, it's not just a personal process, but it should include the cultural and the social, the political and the economic dimensions of this life. Walter Rauschenbusch, who was a pastor and theologian born in 1816, he said this quote, we're going to look at it on the screens. It's about salvation. That's now. We'll come to him in a minute. There we go. Salvation is not a matter of getting individuals into heaven, but of transforming life on earth. 
Salvation is for all the dimensions of human life and also for all of creation, for our world. And so progressive Christians, we do not stand idly by them when someone is being mistreated or overlooked. It means that when some people are denied political or social equality, God seeks to redress that imbalance, just as any good parent would if one child were being severely mistreated by others. And so it's our call then, in turn, to also do that, to stand up for justice and for balance and to work for that. For this world is our home. Its knowledge is our resource. Its evil is our challenge. It's evil is our challenge, and so to seek this world's salvation is our calling, to seek the day when God's kingdom will fully be made on earth, and I believe that will come by God's grace and by human faithfulness. By God's grace and by human faithfulness. It's the very Hebrew idea of shalom, which is more than just the idea of peace. It's peace in a sense of completeness and wholeness and harmony with all. And so Henry Nowen, it's time for Henry Nowen. <laughs> Henry Nowen on the screen. There we go. I love this. He's one of our favorites. In a world so hungry for healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, and most of all, unconditional love, the church must alleviate that hunger through its ministry. Whenever we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the lonely, listen to those who are rejected, and bring unity and peace to those who are divided, we proclaim the living Christ whether we speak about him or not. Whether we speak about him or not. For so long, for so long, we have wanted our question marks to turn into periods. We think we need certainty. We think we need absolutes and answers and finality, but I think it's more in keeping with our ideas of humility and our ideas of growth and journey and maturity and being a habitual learner that we would always maybe have responses instead of answers. That's why we do Q&R here instead of Q&A. It's a humble approach. We have responses instead of answers. That maybe ellipsis points will finish our sentences on all matters of conscience. That I don't know can be a healthy response. I don't know can be a healthy response. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, when talking about faith, um, he gives this beautiful analogy and metaphor of trying not to drown in the middle of the ocean. He says, our desire to know things about God with certainty is represented by our frantic attempt to tread water, which is futile. It's only when one lets go and surrenders and trusts that one floats on top of that water and you realize it's impossible to sink. It's impossible to sink. Pastor and author Robin Myers, he says, faith should be a verb, not a noun. Faith should be a verb, not a noun. A faithful person is not one then that necessarily has all the answers. It's one with a radically embedded trust. It is one that is active and walking. Our faith should be our way of being in the world. And oh, let it be a way of love. And let it be a way of trust. And of giving people the benefit of the doubt. We can think of God as this beautiful mountain analogy which Stan talks about often and realize that we will never reach the top of that mountain. That although that can't be our goal, that we should keep exploring though for the beauty of it. We should keep with the scriptural idea of pilgrimage. Clark Pinnock, another author, says these words. 
So I do not apologize for admitting to being on a pilgrimage in theology as if it were itself some kind of weakness or intelligence of character. Feeling our way towards the truth is the nature of theological work. A pilgrimage, therefore, far from being unusual or slightly dishonorable, is what we would expect theologians who are properly aware of their limitations to experience. So often our frailty as humanity is that we would rather be right than loving. We'd rather be correct and right than just choose to be loving. That's why Robin Myers goes on to say that it's so much easier to reach a verdict than to be a disciple. It's easy for us to reach a conclusion than to be on a lifelong journey. See, we're not trying to convert people here at Grace Point and within progressive Christianity. We are trying to convert our children to our brand of Christianity. Our presence is our evangelism. Our discipleship, our journey will show this road that we think is worth taking. And we will, along the way, show up as love and hope and help and service, and that will be our good news. St. Francis' words are our call to preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. A progressive Christian lens is a humble one and it has a life and a spirit of generosity, of mercy, of hope, of radical hospitality. Our evangelism is not preaching at people, but showing people the truth that is beautiful and that is appealing. Our life should not be spent telling people what they aren't, but our life should be an invitation for people to come home to who they truly are. So does God, does Jesus call you to believe in a certain way, or does he call us to live in a certain way? Does our knowledge of Jesus compel you not just to think and rehearse beliefs and doctrines, but does it call you to live this life of generosity and radical welcome? 2 Corinthians 2 says these words, Thanks be to God who through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. For we are not peddlers of God's words like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God standing in his presence. Let us be that person that has a welcoming and lingering fragrance of Christ for those around us. A good sacred practice for us to continue to try to lead all of us to look for the good, even if it's not there yet, to keep looking until we see it. Because we will see it. You will find the good in people. You will find somehow the good in a situation if you stick with it long enough. I dare us to try it. As progressive Christians, we need to do more than just talk about the changes we want to see on our social media or, or just like people when they're actually doing the changes we want to see. You know, we have to actually start doing them. That's what progressive Christians are. We show up and we will be the change that we want to see in the world as God so eloquently spoke and lived. Subversive talk is cheap and it's very satisfying. It's cheap and it's very satisfying, but subversive living action is expensive. It's expensive. It puts everything we value at risk. Look at the last 10 months of our journey as a church. 
We have risked much, and we have lost much, but oh, look what we've gained. Subversive talk is expensive. It's expensive. Right now, we have to ask ourselves, and I want to ask myself, do I want to be a follower of tradition or of history, or do I want to be a follower of Christ? Because sometimes there's a difference. We need to choose to be those disciples of Christ. Um, the very word Christian, Christian, little Christ. Is that our goal? Is that our goal to embody this in our world? One more goal. Philip Gully says, If the church were Christian, Jesus would be a model for living rather than an object of worship. If the church were Christian, we would be affirming our potential. Affirming our potential would be more important than condemning our brokenness. Reconciliation would be value over judgment. Gracious behavior would be more important than right belief. Inviting questions would be more value than supplying answers. Encouraging personal exploration would be more important than communal conformity, and peace would be more important than power. We aren't trying to reinvent the gospel here. We are trying to discover what is good news. Loving God, loving self, and loving others. Can it be that